Well, I want to invite you to turn this morning into uh, the book of John. We're going to spend the majority of our time there in the New Testament. And uh, I'm going to do a series of messages on meeting God and uh, in some cases confronting God. Some individuals believe it's their right to confront God as opposed to just meet Him. Christian Herder, that name may be very familiar to you, um, he is the governor of Massachusetts and at one time was running for re-election and running hard and working so much on the campaign trail that uh, he forgot to eat lunch one particular day, doing all the train stops that he could. He came to a church barbecue in the afternoon about 4 o'clock and decided that he was famished and he needed to eat before he could speak to the group that had gathered. So he got in the food line, and he's working his way down the food line and held his plate out to the lady serving chicken. And she put one piece of chicken on his plate and turned to serve the next person. And he said, excuse me, ma'am, I'm really, really hungry. Could I have another piece of chicken? She said, I'm sorry, I've only been instructed to give everybody one piece of chicken. Well, ma'am, but I'm really, really hungry. Could I have two pieces, please? She said, one per customer, sir, that's all. Move on down the line. And he's a very modest man and decided at this moment, though, he would throw his weight around a little bit and said, ma'am, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she said, sir, do you know who I am? I'm the woman who controls the chicken. Move it along. (laughs) Not intimidated by meeting a person of great influence. Not at all. Some people, when they meet people of great influence, get flustered and fall apart. What would it be like to meet God? What would it be like to have a face-to-face, personal encounter with God? It has happened for some people through the ages. Daniel, Eve, Isaiah, Job. I've heard people say, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind someday. Really? Job said something like that. Job said in chapter 13, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. If you've never read the book of Job before, the story is that Job lost everything. His children, his fortune, his health, and he was reduced to nothing a man sitting in a sackcloth, literally, on a pile of ashes with boils all over his body. And he was frustrated. And at the peak of his frustration, I want to argue with God. That's what he said. I will argue my case before God. A few chapters later, God shows up. This is a fairly long retort. If you have never read the book of Job before and you want to see a description of how God is in his character and nature, read the latter part of the book of Job. Here's his response to Job. The Lord said to Job, chapter 40, verse 1, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord. (laughs) Now here's a different nature. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. 
Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like His? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in all the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. A few hundred years later, God is talking with a new group of men, and this time in the form of Jesus. And the crowd is not quite so humble. Matter of fact, they're antagonistic. It's a group of Jews. And when we use the word Jews, we use it in the term of the ruling class of the Jews, the authorities. Pick up with me now in John chapter 8. I'm going to have you turn to John chapter 4 in just a few minutes, but John chapter 8 will be on the screen. Truly, truly, and whenever you see Jesus say this, King James Version, NIV Version, NASB, it doesn't matter. When Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, he's saying, firm, firm and steadfast. And it's not just enough to say it once. Firm, firm, steadfast, steadfast. Listen to what I'm about to say to you. This is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him... I will be a liar like you, but I do, know, I do know him and I keep his word. Jesus was very confrontational. Can you, have you ever called someone to their face, liar? And Jesus did it to a whole group of people, the ruling class? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up the stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple, went out of the temple. Have you ever read verses like that and you say, what in the, why are they stoning him for that? They understood when he said, I am. He's saying, I am Jehovah. I am that I am. The same I am that appeared before Moses is saying, I am. And they understood this, and they want to kill him for blaspheming God because they believe that he's claiming to be God, rightfully so. John, in his book, presents Jesus in a whole new light that we haven't seen before. Matthew and Mark and Luke were the earliest ones written. And Mark was written first. I've talked to you about that before. And Matthew and Luke probably used Mark as a source of information as they wrote their Gospels. But John begins to present Jesus in a whole new theological light. 
Here's why. Many years had gone by. Jesus had been dead and resurrected and ascended. The church had been established. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke's books existed among the church. But dissension began to arise, doctrinal differences. And so John wrote his gospel to explain Jesus in a whole new theological light. As a matter of fact, that's why he wrote this in John in 20, chapter 20. He said, these things that are written that you may maintain your belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John is much more theological in his explanation of Matt, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So much so that Jesus is beginning to understand or present himself now at this point in time as one who is the redeemer of the world to the point when he makes statements like this that the Pharisees are getting in an uproar and they're watching more and more disciples leave John the Baptist and come over to Jesus' camp. That's when you hear of the story, perhaps you've read this before, of the man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's one of the ruling class of the Pharisees. He doesn't want to be seen by anybody. So he comes in and starts asking Jesus questions in private. Jesus answers him with his long dissertation in John chapter 3. And after that is finished, we pick up in John chapter 4. And that's where I'd like you to turn right now. John chapter 4 starts out with Jesus being so popular, as I referred to, that he actually wanted to leave the area where he was teaching in Jerusalem to go to another region to avoid the conflict because people started recognizing what an incredible leader he was. But there was so much antagonism around who he was. He thought it better at that point to leave Jerusalem and go to Galilee to carry out his ministry. But to do that, he had to go through a region known as Samaria. Think of Samaria like this. How many MSU Spartan fans are in this room right now? Die-hard Spartan fans. Okay. How does it make you feel as MSU Spartan die-hard fans to go to Ann Arbor? Okay. How many Wolverine fans here don't like to go to East Lansing? <laughs> okay. All right. You guys are really proud. You're raising your hand high. In this sense, take what you feel about football games, athletic events, and contextualize it around your mind to the point where you hate, and I don't mean have you kicked a Wolverine today or calling moo you, moo you, okay? It's not that kind. It's much more intense than that. And so when you look at Samaria, you have to think in terms of the Jews hated the Samaritans. So to go into their territory through Samaria was much more than a Spartan going to Ann Arbor or a Wolverine coming to East Lansing. It was intense hatred. Part of the reason for that is they had been a displaced people. If you know your Old Testament history at all, you know that the Jews were sent away into Babylonian captivity. And when they returned to Israel, 70 years after their captivity, the Babylonians had repopulated their territory with this group of half-breeds, half-Jewish people, half-idolaters from all over the world, and they were known as the Samaritans. And Jesus was going to travel through Samaria, and he was going to stop at this village called Sychar. Sychar is 34 miles north of Jerusalem, probably a good solid seven hours walk. 
And if they started out at 6 in the morning, maybe 5 in the morning, I don't know. They arrived there by noon, and that's where we pick this up at, John 4, 4. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, noon. At the base of a mountain called Mount Gerizim was Jacob's well. And this is a very holy spot, still there today. As a matter of fact, the Greek Orthodox Church literally built a church over the top of this well. And the well still provides water today, fresh, deep well water from 125 feet down. Cool, refreshing water. And Jacob, a thousand years before, had used it to feed his family and take care of his cattle. So this is an area that Jews wanted to visit, but they tended not to go to. Good Jewish boys didn't go there because it was Samaritan country. They didn't want to be in the land of the Samaritans. Now, in this story, we seem to be watching this like America's Funniest Home Video or Candid Camera. It's like there's a camera running, and we get this great dialogue going back and forth between Jesus. We get to observe this privately, watching everything that was recorded. John 4, 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me drink. Now, let me stop you right there. Just don't think that Jesus was rude. Give me, the word give means grant. He's asking a question. If you have the NIV in front of you, it actually says, will you give me a drink, which is a more accurate interpretation. For his disciples, verse 8, had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this lady leaving Sychar, her village, and walking to the well had about a half-mile walk in front of her. And walking away from her village, she would have run into the disciples who by custom either had to get off the road and give her right-of-way as a woman, especially as a Samaritan, or she had to step off the road and let the Jewish men pass on by, but with her head down and her veil over her face, not making eye contact with the men. They would have been moving in opposite directions. The guys are going into the village to buy food, and she's on her way to the well, having no idea who she's about to meet. will change her life. I'm sure she was surprised to find a man sitting at a well when she arrived there. Very unusual for men to be at the well. And even further, that she was about to be addressed by a Jew. She was going to have face-to-face conversation with a Jewish man, a rabbi no less. Jewish rabbis would never dare dream of talking to a Samaritan, let alone a woman. And then on top of that, to ask for a cup of water from a Samaritan woman. It's very unusual. And the fact that she's coming to the well at noon says a whole lot about what's going on here. She obviously did not want to have contact with the other women. Women always went to the well in the morning or in the evening, never in the heat of the day. It's very uncommon for them to do that. Verse 9, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, Ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman. And then John gives us his commentary, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There's a little sarcasm in her voice and the way this is written, in that, yeah, we're dirt under your feet until you want something from us. That's more contextually the way that she was responding with this. And Jesus paid no attention to her bitterness. 
gave her no chance for retort. He merely said to her, if you knew. In the midst of that, I find it very interesting that many Christians, when they're challenged on their belief structure or why they make the decisions that they make, quickly the defensive walls go up. And we don't see that ever in Jesus. As a matter of fact, he wants to elevate her level of thinking and take her to a whole new plane. And so there's no defensive walls. He takes her from material consumption thinking into spiritual reality. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That phrase may not mean much to you, but that was a phrase that was used as a descriptor of God Jehovah, living water. From Jeremiah chapter 2, it won't be on the screen, just let me read this to you. Listen, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters." God's calling himself the fountain, the source of living water. Jesus is saying, if you had asked, I would give you living water. Verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? She heard his words, but she totally missed the meaning. Perhaps she didn't know the word of God. So Jesus is going to take her to the next level. He's going to talk to her about what living water is. Now, you need to understand contextually, when they're talking about the well of Jacob, thank you, Allison, they're talking about a well that's about 125 feet deep. And the ancients among this group of people saw the well as having two stages to it. The first stage would be the water that they would draw out of. But if their bucket was heavy enough and it could get all the way to the bottom of the well where the springs were feeding it, a whole 125 feet down, where the water was bubbling up and still does to this day, that's the water they call living water. The water that was active and it was gurging. And she wanted to know, how in the world is he going to get down to that? That's why she said, this is deep. How in the world are you going to get your bucket? You don't even have a bucket to get all the way down to it. Jesus answered her and said, Everyone who drinks of this water, verse 13, will thirst again. (laughs) This is appropriate now. (laughs) God has a sense of humor. I will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, right next to that word springing, the word bubbling, because it's active. It's always moving. It's coming out. It's not stagnant. My family has some property way up by the Mackinac Bridge. It's been in our family since 1910. And on one hillside is an artesian well. And you can't plug it. You can't stop it. It's just pouring out of the wall, out of the side of the hill. It's always moving. It's living water. That's what Jesus is referring to. 
It's constantly coming up out of you. There's no stagnation. The items which come to us from without this kind of thing, it never satisfies. You eat a Snickers bar, you want to eat a Snickers bar a couple hours later. You eat a great steak dinner, you know, a couple hours later you're finding the bag of chips. It doesn't fill you up. It doesn't satisfy. You take a wad of money out of your pocket, you run to the mall, you buy the latest iPod. But then six months later, there's a new one that's introduced. Bummer. Okay? Jesus is saying, what you're taking in from the outside, it doesn't meet your needs. What I'm about to give you, it's coming from inside. It's always bubbling up. It's fresh and it's new. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. (laughs) Now she's trapped because she doesn't have a husband. And Jesus is drawing her into a conversation. And he knows what her status is. So now she's got to make a response. The woman said, verse 17, I have, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. I really like the way Jesus spoke directly to an individual. He's cutting out all the small talk. And I think it's a model of how we as believers really need to deal with people who are far from God and those whom we are in relationship with who are believers. And I'm not talking about in your face. I'm talking about gentle rebuke or face-to-face conversation with people who are obviously making wrong choices in life. We are so polite. Jesus calls people liar. What? Sure, yeah, you did have five husbands. The example here is we need to be willing to speak into the lives of the individuals whom we count as our friends and brothers and sisters. My wife is so much better at this than me. When she has relationships with friends, they speak. Women seem, some, I don't know how you do this, ladies, but you seem to be so able to speak right to the soul of each other. Guys, you know, talking about the football game, motorcycles, yeah, how's work? It's really hard to get below and go subterranean until we look at the model of Jesus and he's speaking directly into the life of an individual like this. What image do you have of this woman at this point? It's the mental picture that pops up in your head when you hear of a woman who's been married five times and now the one she's with, she's in an adulterous relationship with. doesn't create the best image in your mind, does it? I think this is really an image of who you and I are before we knew Jesus. She's confused about Scripture. She's confused about who He is. She's confused about her purpose in life. Has no direction. Until Jesus comes into her life 
and straightens everything out for her and says, this is truth. She's a good representation of what we're like or what we were like before Christ. And I think he shocked her when he lifted up the veil on her life and said, here's who you really are. That's the conviction that comes from Christ. It's really hard to hide things from an omniscient God, isn't it? Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Stop right there. She said truth. She got that far. She recognized there's something special about this guy. But then ego kicks in, and she wants to change the subject. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that the people in Jer- that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And she's immediately trying to change the subject. There's a shift that just took place here. She went from saying, wow, you just spoke truth to me. You're something special. Okay, well, I'm going to try and ignore that and push that away because I don't want to deal with that. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's cornered, and she's trying to avoid what is becoming a very, very uncomfortable conversation. So she raises the old controversy between Jews and Samaritans. Here's something very fascinating. It's kind of a sideline note to this message. The area that still exists today called Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is a place where God sent his people to to pronounce blessings and curses. When you read in the book of Deuteronomy about blessings and curses, this is what God had them do. He had the leadership get up on Mount Ebal and the leadership get up on Mount Gerizim. And those on Mount Ebal were to pronounce the curses of God. And as one voice, they yelled it across the valley. And then with one voice, the people on the opposite side were to yell the blessings of God across the valley. And all the people of Israel were down inside the valley listening to the blessings and the curses and the blessings and the curses going back and forth. So this is a very special area. It has rich history to the faith. But she's trying to divert Jesus and saying, what's the source of this real argument? And Jesus pulls her right back on track. Full circle, he lets her go away with her conversation. Verse 21, he brings her down a new trail. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, one we're referring to right here, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus, again, avoided the argument by elevating her thinking to a whole new level. Nothing that you know currently is going to continue to exist because you don't need the temple to worship anymore. See, the Samaritans were so serious about their faith, they actually built their own temple, just like Solomon's temple on Mount Gerizim. And they carried out their own Passovers. They carried out all their own sacrifices. Today, if you went to Samaria, you would find on Passover Sunday, Samaritans on the side of Mount Gerizim doing Passover offerings. They still do it. They're so sincere about it. And Jesus is saying, the day is coming when you will no longer worship in this temple or that temple because I'm the temple. I'm here. She didn't quite understand that yet. Verse 23. 
But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God seeks after us, not vice versa. No man seeks after God, the Scriptures say. God seeks after us. And God is saying that about God right here. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Follow on with me. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is one of four descriptions of God found in the New Testament. God is light. God is love. God is a consuming fire. Those are in 1 John and in Hebrews. And God is spirit, Jesus is saying. I'm spirit. God is describing God. Always pay very close attention to this when Jesus is talking about God. You're getting a true picture of his character and nature. Only the word, the word becoming flesh, is adequate to explain who God is. The word is explaining God. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. That's code for, okay, you're talking way over my head now and I'm not getting any of this. So she diverts it again, trying to say, when Messiah comes, he'll make all things clear to us. This is why she said that. In Deuteronomy, in chapter 15, there's a reference in which Moses was talking about when Jesus would arrive on earth. Called him the prophet. Let me read this to you. Chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. Listen to this description of Jesus. All the way back from 1,500 years earlier in the time of Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. That was what the Samaritans and the Jews hung their hope on. So whenever you hear a Jewish world saying, Messiah is coming, he has not come yet, This is what they base it on. They're referring to the prophecy of the one who would be coming, the prophet. And so she's saying, when the prophet comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And this is the hope on which Jesus speaks directly into her life. This is meeting God. His response, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There's nobody picking up stones to throw them at him this time. There's no Jewish leader standing around waiting to chuck stones and try and kill him. This is the one occasion when Jesus voluntarily said, I am God. Go ahead and search for it through the New Testament. You, you won't find it in the Gospels. Jesus voluntarily announced, here's who I am. And this is the great part. He chose an adulterous woman living in a backwater town in a country that everybody hated to reveal 
that he's the Messiah. He chose each of us in the midst of our sin, living in the hinterlands, to say, I'm he, and I'm here to provide you a way. Amazing thought. The words of God are still ringing in her ears. I just met God. And so she gets so excited that she picks up everything because she's overwhelmed and runs back into the city. She wants to tell the people what she had just experienced. Knowing what was in her heart, Jesus let it end right there. I think in Christendom we have a great temptation to try and oversell the kingdom. We try and oversell Jesus. We want people to buy in so badly sometimes when we're talking about it. We're constantly making a defense. Jesus lets it stop right there. And he lets her leave. He doesn't say, wait, come back. i got a lot of things to tell you about. Let's talk about the Torah. He doesn't do that. He leaves it and lets it fester inside her. Wow, now i got to deal with this. At this point, verse, 20, verse 27, excuse me, need water from without. Uh, satisfies temporarily, though. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? This is a violation of rabbinical custom. Jesus was not supposed to be in a conversation with a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, at her work environment. And this is pretty shocking to the disciples. And they watch the woman run away, and then their eyes draw back to the water pot that she'd brought with her. Scripture gives us that detail and tells us that the water pot was left behind. Verse 28, So the woman left her water pot and went into the city, And said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. It's very doubtful that the leaders of this village, and they were theologically oriented people, it's very doubtful that they would have received her theological instructions, knowing her background, small village, they know all about her. But she was so insistent and so sincere about what she had just experienced, they left what they were doing and went all the way out to the well to meet this one. Why? The living water, it's bubbling up inside her. It's not stagnant. It's coming to life. And she's beginning to understand. There's a revelation of the Holy Spirit going on. Come and see this one that I have met. And they come out because why? They need some living water too. They need the same source of water that you need and that your friends need who are far from God. This living water is very descriptive of our God. If you haven't seen it before, let me draw you to it. As we wrap up right now, read closely with me from the book of Revelation. It will come up on the screen. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Revelation twenty-two sixteen 16 says this, I, Jesus, 
have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches, for you, for the church, the ecclesia. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life living water. You just met God in a whole new way. Life-giving, bubbly, abundant, always flowing out, never stagnant. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God? Nothing grows without water. Beautiful picture. Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you that you have revealed truth to us. There's things, Father, that we've read just now that won't even register in our minds until Wednesday or Thursday this week. And there's things that we've just learned that will haunt us throughout the day. The revelation that we're in relationship with the King of Kings. God, we praise you and thank you for providing a way for us. You gave us living water when you gave us Jesus. Here on earth, incarnate, God redeeming man. Father, I thank you for just drenching me in your living water. I thank you for the brothers and sisters in this room who are in relationship with you who are just drenched in your living water. But Father, I'm led to pray for those in this room who are not in relationship with you, then they're wondering, what in the world are we talking about? Father, I ask that you work on their hearts, help them to understand this truth, cause them to be bold enough to come and ask questions. I look at the woman at the well, Father, and she had a lot of questions, and you were glad to answer them. Help us as mature believers to be willing to answer the questions of those who need to know more of you. Father, we ask all these things in the mighty name of our King Jesus. Amen.